My name is Paddy Butler. This podcast is brought to you by Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. In this series of discussions, we'll be covering culture, books, ideas and art. Today, we talked to two very different authors who share surprising similarities in terms of subject matter. Josh Cohn's non-fiction, Not Working, published by Granta, looks at our overworked, compressed lives and explores alternative philosophical routes to creative happiness. Uh, whilst last September I had the unique opportunity to chat with cult fiction author of Eileen, Otessa Mushfeg, about her darkly brilliant novel, My Year of Rest and Relaxation. Uh, but first, we'll take a look at some titles we think are pretty hot right now. Special mention, I think, goes to The Chronology of Water by Lydia Yuknevich. Um, we're big fans of Lydia. Her book, the Book of Joan came out last year and it really is one of our favourite titles from 2018. Also, there's the obvious big hitter, Black Leopard, Red Wolf by Marlon James, published by Hamish Hamilton. There's a great short story collection from Japan by Yukiko Motoya, Picnic in the Storm. That was reviewed actually by Chris Parr in The Guardian over the weekend. Surprising little collection and really quite surreal, punchy um, and, and magical short stories. And then the last title that piqued my interest was Origins, How the Earth Made Us, Lewis Darknell. And that's published by Bodley Head. And essentially looking at the whole dynamic of where we came from, as in physics, biology, the full story, I guess, and our relationship to the planet. So quite current and of the moment. Um, that, that's all for this week in terms of books roundup. But yeah, definitely keep an eye out for Lydia Yuknevich, Chronology of Water. Huge cult hit in the US. I think it was published in 2013. It's going to be published by Canongate over here next month. And yeah, it's really going to be absolutely fantastic, I think. But now um, we're going to have a little chat with Josh Cohen. Josh will be in conversation with Devorah Baum and Anushka Gross um, at Liberia tonight. But, we, you know, we thought we'd bring in Josh to have a, have a little chat with him here for the podcast. Um, Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, brilliant book. Um, it is... It's it's a winding philosophical autobiographical meditation on on being, I guess. Um, but you also you kind of tailor that around, or you look at different figures throughout history, different creative figures: Orson Welles, mm-hmm. uh, Warhol, Emily Dickinson, David Foster Wallace, and you kind of um, you give them little uh, little tags. Um, Orson Welles, The Slob, Andy Warhol, The Burnout, Emily Dickinson, The Dreamer, David Foster Wallace, The Slacker. Yeah. Um, so where does somebody like, um, just to go back to the key figures that you discuss in the book, where does somebody like Orson Welles um, come in on that, on that idea? Because, I mean, his creativity is absolutely explosive in every sense of the yeah. word. How do you categorize him in, 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 in relation to Schopenhauer? How do you describe his personality? Um, so there is a kind of wild expenditure of energy yeah. um, in Wells's life, in Wells's career. Um, he finds it impossible to stop moving. And what I'm interested in is the 
paradoxical relationship between this utterly compulsive activity and creativity and excess because not only is he excessive in work he's excessive in life mm, i mean mm. he he has this sort of absolutely insatiable appetite for sex for food for drink um as well as for work mm. and there are times when you sort of read about the way that he shuttled between radio broadcasts filmmaking projects mm. script mm. writing um theater projects um and you know these numerous affairs and you think well i mean just logistically how yes. was that how was that possible you know i mean i i feel completely exhausted kind of trying to imagine <laughs> a day in the life of orson welles but there's something about that excess that actually has a quite intimate relationship with a kind of a discharge that gets you to the point of emptiness mm, to to the mm, point of inertia mm. as though what he's trying to do day after day really is exhaust or mm, expend mm. all his energetic reserves so he doesn't have to kind of reflect on his himself yeah. essentially yeah i mean I- I- interestingly um he says that uh, uh, you know more than once that he really loathes freud in psychoanalysis uh, okay um he thinks that, you know, reflecting on your unconscious is a way of killing it, which, of course, is quite mm. a sort of, you know, that there were a number of um, modern uh, modernist artists who felt, I mean, Joyce said something similar. Yes. Um, yeah. <clears throat> others, of course, have been much more s- sympathetic. You know, the, the surrealists have, yeah. have uh, had an affinity for psychoanalysis. Samuel Beckett was, mm. um, uh, was, was much more... Um, uh, interested. Um, uh, well, he under he undertook he undertook analysis, analysis with, with 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 the great British analyst Wilfred Bion. Mm. Yeah, um, but for Wells, of course, touching on the sources of creativity mm. in a way threatened a kind of break in that manic flow. Right, um, and I I imagine that there's something about stopping that terrifies Wells. And yet, if if your life is pure expenditure, mm. at a certain point, mm. you mm. are going to run out. You are mm. going to exhaust your internal resources. Mm. And I think a lot of his later life is about that. And, of course, what he did to his body, mm. because, um, you know, it's not just about becoming kind of morbidly obese. Mm. Um there's a way in which he performs and uses the excess of his body, particularly in Touch of Evil, and then the the, the film I write about most, the, the Falstaff movie, Chant yeah, at Midnight, of course, yeah. um, where what he seems to be doing in that film really is is using his body as a kind of playing out of a ravaged life, of a of, of a life that is really defined by excess um by kind of having tasted all of the vanities of life and coming to the end Mm -hmm. and you know there's a very sort of poignant confusion almost i think in the film between wells and falstaff because this is not falstaff the um uproarious party animal that you get in so many other versions of him you know everyone's favorite clown yeah um there is something so vulnerable about Wells as full stuff. And 
you know, Wells was great at many things as an actor, but actually he wasn't so great at vulnerability. He was somebody who who tend to sort of declaim a lot um, in in his acting. Well, that kind of leads on to I, I think um, I mean what we've discussed so far. There is there is a binary opposition, isn't there, within humans? Following on from that, like looking at today and social media, Facebook, um, the overwhelming nature of you know digital interaction that we have does it say a lot about how unhappy or disenchanted we are as individuals today in, in, in our overwhelming consumer society does that ring a, a kind of a yeah it does i mean that was part of the impulse for for writing the book the feeling that in a way what what social media changes about this whole problem is that it seems at least for those who are really invested in it. It seems to really colonize all the space that was available for... The free space. Yeah, the free space for sort of cultivating oneself in in privacy, um, for turning away from the world. Mm. Um, The thing about social media is that it's made turning away from the world a way of turning towards the world. Um, And... So I think it's not a coincidence. I mean, you know, in a way I'm this terrible kind of social media voyeur because I'm interested in it, mm-hmm. but I, I don't have social media accounts. So I just kind of troll. Is, it, is that from a professional uh, perspective as in teaching or you're a psychoanalyst as yeah, well? Yeah, it's, it's probably to, a lot to do with being a psychoanalyst, but it's also temperamental and it, it, in that sense it's double-edged you know i could be very pious and say oh you know I, i'm just above the fray i'm i i i'm you know don't want to exhibit myself in that way but it's more complicated than that because yeah. i do also have the anxiety that if i let myself loose on these on these uh platforms i just uh, wh- when would i ever leave you know? right yeah um uh you know i i kind of feel the pull of both impulses very intensely yeah but wouldn't you like as a, as a a great lover of literature, wouldn't it come to the point where you go, well, I just want to read my novel? Well, I, I, I really hope so. <laughs> I hope so. But, you know, I can, I can imagine a scenario in which, um, and of course this comes up quite a lot in my consulting room, um, where, you know, people will complain that they don't read books because, you know, their hand is kind of almost prosthetically attached to whatever feed they're, they're streaming through. One of the things I find really interesting, you know, trawling through, say, an Insta feed mm. is how many of the images are um, sort of idyllic images of stillness, mm-hmm. of, you know, meditation, of some sort of blissfully inertial state. And I, I think, again, there's a real ambiguity about that because it's obviously expressing a yearning mm. um, to... And it, to to enter that idyllic yeah, utopia, yeah, that's almost. right. And yeah. to to shut out the freneticism yes. and the demands yeah. of the world, and to stop being called upon. But at the same time, of course, it makes that impulse a product. It also makes it an object of anxiety because as soon as you're displaying a state of stillness, mm. say you know um, a beautiful Caribbean beach, mm. well, you know that might induce envy. Mm. um it might induce resentment um or if it's a picture of 
somebody, you know, in some perfectly assumed yoga pose, yeah. um, again, um, it induces the anxiety that I can't be that meditative, I can't be that still. How do I get... So, you know, even these states become objects of sort of competitiveness with oneself, yes. with rivals. Um, and all of these techniques which are becoming so popular in our frenetic um, culture, like mindfulness meditation, they're all subject to a similar kind of anxiety. Am yeah. I doing it well enough? Um, uh, do I look beatific enough when I, when I yes. you know, show myself doing to be doing it? Super discussion with the ever-friendly Josh Cohen there. Uh, really recommend Not Working, uh, published by Granta. And it also resonates in many ways with Otessa Mushfeg's novel, My Year of Rest and Relaxation. I luckily had the opportunity to catch up with Otessa last September for a quick chat at Second Home. So check it out here. And what, and what, also, but like the, the cultural background is quite interesting as well, in the sense of, you know, building her uh, character. She's quite apathetic towards, I mean, she's, she's sick and tired of, of, of people in general. Um, most notably her friend, Riva. But she's also kind of um, sick and tired of culture also, uh, whether it be that contemporary art. And she kind of finds refuge a lot in uh, Whoopi Goldberg movies or Harrison Ford. How does, how, how does that play into the whole dynamic? Is, it, is, is that her central motive then? Is it, is it an apathy towards people or is it a combination of an apathy towards people and culture? Her antipathy towards uh, culture is really just a personal response to heartbreak and abandonment from, by her parents. I don't think that she's a very philosophical character, mm. but I think she intellectualizes her feelings like most overeducated people do. Mm. So she's been hurt a lot um, despite all of her privilege, mm. which is interesting as the writer to look at, you know, it's very easy to look at people two-dimensionally and say, well, she's, you know, she's tall, pretty, thin, um, rich, spoiled, owns her own apartment, never mm -hmm. has to work, can spend a year sleeping, like, fuck her. Mm. There's nothing interesting about that. But the truth is everybody has an internal life and hers I was interested in. Mm. Um, how could, you know, everybody experiences the pain of loss mm -hmm. when when one experiences loss. So um, I was interested in her experience of loss. And, and what it feels like to not have um, an outlet for an excuse for mourning. So, I can't remember. Oh, so her antipathy toward culture, <laughs> I think, is in response to its superficiality. Mm. And the superficiality with which the culture responds to her as a beautiful young woman. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know... I, I don't know what it's like to be tall, beautiful, thin, blonde, and young and living in Manhattan in the year 2000, but I would imagine you are met with a different response when you walk into a room than mm. if you were anyone else. So she has a certain lens on society, and she's not an idiot. Mm -hmm. I mean, she can... She's really, really clever. 
Yeah, she's smart. She she's smart enough to not take even herself too seriously. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think that her project is it is more spiritual than she would ever want to admit. Yeah. And yeah. and and it takes the project to find its own completion for her to admit that the, that it was kind of spiritual in its ambitions. Um uh, what about Reva? Where does she where does she stand in this? I mean is she 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 acts as a foil to the main protagonist. Reva seemed like a very familiar character and maybe even a little bit of a cliche in her concerns because she's so, she's really. She's quite extreme. She's had a lot of the Kool-Aid. Yeah. And um, has started to even brand her own emotions in terms that she's read in self-help books and stuff. Um, She's superficial. Mm. But but Riva isn't just that. I mean, I think she's sort of a, a willing victim of that, or 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 all of those things play into a very deep insecurity that she has. Mm. But all of those things are very important because they're the things that she talks about, and they're the things that deeply irritate the protagonist. Yeah. So it's a little bit of a Abbott and Costello. Situation. But there's, and I suppose they're still bound by something anyway. They're, they they need each other ultimately. So there is love. There is love there somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Uh, whereas with with her boyfriend Trevor, that is, it's very hard to find anything there at all. Is there? I mean, did you choose his name? In was that quite particularly chosen? Because it's quite an interesting. Really. Name. Well, in the sense that it's. It's not exotic, is it, Trevor? It's quite a straightforward. Hmm. No one's asked me about that name. I think that there's something inherently evil in having a V in the middle of a name. Like there's something distrustful about people who have a V in the name. Hmm. Like Riva. Riva kind of makes up for herself. But Trevor, um, it's like devil. Yeah. <clears throat> Trevor is not a very round character. No. He's just sort of a Patrick Bateman-esque yeah. dickhead. Yeah. With no real individuality. Um, you know, sort of a slave to the system. In a different way from Riva, but mm. probably more so because he really only exists to make money and buy expensive things. And use and use his money and <clears throat> apparent prestige as a power to disregard the protagonist as a non-entity, a manipulator in a lot yeah. of ways as well. Yeah. So, I mean, he he is an important figure in the book only because he represents. He, I mean, we're talking a lot about representation, <laughs> but he is the dis, he is the disappointment. I mean. She, 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 in her stupidest moments, turns to him for comfort and gets exactly what she... Mm. It, it gets the exact confirmation that there is no comfort, which is what she is, kind of, is comfortable believing. Yeah. Nobody can ever give you anything. So, so it's kind of like the, the... She's using it as a drug in a sense. I, I mean, I know that's kind of a... 
maybe too straightforward, but but it is like the it is like the medication that she's using. She works in well at the beginning of the novel. She works in the contemporary art world, mm-hmm. um, and 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 I suppose her lens onto that is quite um, it, it's it's sarcastic and it's kind of how do you say it? She doesn't have time for the for the contemporary art world. Does that play into an idea of the contemporary culture as not not a great filter to kind of um, distill your emotions or try and understand your emotions? Does that play out against the big pharma or pharmaceuticals as an easier way to to deal with reality? Is that a kind of a culture versus science? story or is that am i am i kind of oh i again think, i mean i think you're entitled to your own reading <laughs> yeah um i think there's something really heartbreakingly disappointing about art contemporary art because that, of the market yeah um something that's supposed to be ineffable and moving and but, but you know, it's also bullshit because, like, mm. some of the best... I mean, when you look at whatever, when you go to a museum, you're like, wow, what a master. Well, he's probably being paid by the king anyway. Yeah. Anyway, um, I think all art is irresponsible. Mm. I mean, yeah, she, it should be. She should be irresponsible. What else is she going to do? Mm. Be responsible? What does it mean to be responsible? Get a job until you die. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you do if you don't have to get a job? Mm. Sit at home and watch TV. Which she does quite a bit of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a problem. Mm. Do you know many people with like excess wealth? No, I don't actually. It's quite interesting. Yeah, I don't know that many people. Yeah, I hadn't. I hadn't known anyone who didn't have to work until my later 20s. Right. And they are absolutely the most depressed people I've ever met. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think there's something, so, it's such a blessing to have to make a living in so many ways, to use your creativity. Yeah. And uh, have an ambition. Have some drive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To, to survive. Yeah. I mean, if, but if your survival is like, yo, you're just like sitting at home getting fat, I don't know. It's like I feel I I I feel sorry for people who don't have a sense of purposefulness. Yeah. And they're like I think that's really sad. Mm. Um especially because they get absolutely no pity. <laughs> I mean nobody's going to feel sorry for yeah. you if your problem is you have too much money. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's interesting. It's an interesting problem. You've, no, you've nothing to fight for really, do you? Like mm-hmm. the, creatively or otherwise so yeah no motivation so there's just something disappointing about everything i mean there's something disappointing about religion too yeah you know it's like where where do you where do you turn to look for the sacred well the bottom line is there's probably something fucked up at, at the bottom of it yeah that that there is no real the sacred has kind of been ruined by civilization at large and all of in the beginning of human history Pharmaceutical industry is just another demonstration of that. 
what is the mind, the un, un, unimaginably huge force within all of us has been reduced to brain matter that can be manipulated through ingestion of chemicals mm-hmm. by, a, by an industry so greedy and inhumane that doesn't even try to help people. It just slaps together chemical compounds and then sees what they do. Um, not to say that, that, that psychiatry is like uh, in, inhumane completely. Yeah. But when you look at the roots of the drug industry, I mean, starts in Nazi Germany. Mm. Why? No, synthetic, synthetic drug. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, there to it's there to control people and it's very <clears throat> useful that the more out of control the world feels the more people need to be controlled mm. um i don't know how anyone i mean it's just it's, it seems very difficult to stay sane in a world that is so unnatural mm. I mean, i'm in a room where there's like not a single natural material yeah like i should be i should feel extremely uncomfortable <laughs> As a as a <laughs> organic being in this place, but whatever. Oh, fascinating discussion with both my guests today: psychoanalyst Josh Cohn and the brilliant novelist Otessa Mushfeg. Uh, we'll be speaking to lots of interesting people in the upcoming weeks, so do check out the Liberia podcast and a full listing of our events on secondome.io. See you next time. <laughs>